Hi, this is Justin Hibbert, and you're listening to Why Catholic, my podcast where I dive into the what and why of Catholicism in digestible episodes in about 17 minutes. If you've been following along, you know that we've been talking about the framework for Catholicism, which is the sacramental worldview. This idea that the undercurrent of the supernatural pokes through the natural, that heaven kisses earth, and grace is transferred from God to us. We talked about how the church throughout the vast majority of Christian history has recognized seven sacraments, baptism, confirmation, the Eucharist, reconciliation, anointing of the sick, marriage, and holy orders. And they've recognized these seven sacraments because each of these share two things in common. In the sacrament, we make a sacred oath and we experience a spiritual mystery. In reconciliation, we confess our sins and God mysteriously and wonderfully forgives us of our sins and cleanses us of all unrighteousness. In the Eucharist, we partake of the bread and wine, and God mysteriously transubstantiates the elements into the body and blood of Jesus. In marriage, we make a solemn oath to our spouse and mysteriously to become one flesh. And there's something else that these seven sacraments share in common as well. We don't do them alone. We can't. You can't baptize yourself just like you can't marry yourself. Sorry, dead Mr. Rodman. It requires community. God designed it that way. Why? Because God is a communal God. Genesis 1 records the creation story. It says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. In those three initial verses of the Bible, we see a mountain of community. Where? Uh, first, we're introduced to God, but it also says that the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. Then the text explains that God spoke, so we're also introduced to the Word of God. In John chapter 1, John explains that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In other words, the Word of God isn't just God using his vocal cords. It is a person in this mysterious complexity we call God. That complexity is further developed in the name of God that we're introduced to in Genesis 1, the Hebrew word Elohim. What makes this so puzzling is that Elohim is the plural word for God. The word literally means gods. So why does our translation say God in the singular form? The answer is because Elohim is one. The famous Shema, the center of the Jewish law, which we find in Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Hebrew words that God uses to identify himself here are Yehovah Elohim. So how do we explain this mystery, that God is multiple yet singular? How do we explain that Jesus says, if you've seen me, then you've seen the Father, but then prays to the Father as though he's a different being? Here's how the church has explained this idea throughout history. They've said God is community, and we have a word for that community. We call it the Trinity or the triunity. God is one being and three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not only is God community, but he moves us towards community as well. When God created the earth, the land, the plants, the animals, what did he create next? What was his final creation? He created man. Genesis 1.26 says, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. Notice the plural words, us and our. God, in a sense, is procreating. After he makes man, he notices something. Every time he created, he said it was good, but he suddenly notices something isn't good about his creation. In Genesis 2.18, God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. And so he creates woman. It is here that we learn of the first sacrament, the sacrament of marriage, to become one flesh. How? It's a mystery in the same way that God's triune nature is a mystery. 
We see God orchestrating community in the Jewish people as well. As God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush, he was directing Moses away from isolation in the wilderness towards community. Specifically, God wanted Moses to free the community of Hebrew slaves in Egypt. As a step towards freedom, they celebrated their first Jewish feast, the Feast of Passover. They shared a meal as a community, they painted blood on their doorposts, and it's here that God is distinguishing their identity as a separate community, not just Egyptian slaves any longer. They were becoming free, gaining their independence as a community. We see this emphasis of community throughout the story of Israel, particularly Joshua 7 with the occasion of Achan's sin. When one person failed, the whole army suffered the consequences. The inverse was true. God brought atonement for sin as a community on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, which we talked about in episode 4. The high priest was able to atone for all of the sins of the community of Israel by sprinkling blood on the Ark of the Covenant. This theme of community continued with the coming of Jesus the Messiah. He could have come as a soldier riding in on a Mustang, but instead, how does he arrive? He's incarnated in the womb of a woman. In the Genesis story, God uses the community of husband and wife. In the gospel, he uses the community of mother and child. When Jesus grew older, what was his first act of ministry? He called 12 disciples. Again, Jesus didn't lack the capacity to be a one-man show. He could have gone at this alone, but he didn't. He called 12 seemingly random guys to join him to share in his work. At the transfiguration, what happened? Jesus took Peter, James, and John up to a mountain, and there Moses and Elijah appeared and conversed with Jesus. There's community again. The future leaders of Christianity are introduced to two of the most famous Jewish leaders in history. Jesus brought the community together, past, present, and future. After Jesus' ascension, the Holy Spirit came at the Feast of Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit empowered the entire community of believers that were gathered together in Jerusalem. And as the church took its first steps on Pentecost, we see a pattern that will get repeated over and over. The church grows through community. Someone from the Christian community preaches the gospel, an individual hears and believes, and a member of the Christian community baptizes that individual, and either the same person or someone else from the Christian community lays their hands on the individual so that they will receive the Holy Spirit. Just as God's plan of atonement operated within the community of Israel, so God's plan of salvation operates within the community of the church. Of course God designed it that way. He's been doing it since the time of creation. He includes others in his work, and in his work he brings together people in community. Jesus explained in Matthew 18.20, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. There's a word in community that we shouldn't miss, unity. God is community, and in that word we see unity. He is triunity, your trinity. The husband and wife come together and the two become one flesh. There's unity again. A pregnant woman shares a special unity with her unborn child, but the two are individual beings. God loves the unity that we find in these communal relationships made up of diverse individuals. It's like his signature. In one of Jesus' final prayers before his death, he desperately prayed for the unity of his followers. Talking with the Father, he prayed, may they be one as you and I are one. Now that's a tall order. Be in perfect unity like the triune relationship of God. 
But here's the genius of these sacraments. They are designed to bring us closer to God and bring us closer into community. We can all have a personal relationship with God. We can all go into our prayer closets and commune with God, and we will certainly grow closer to God in those activities. But to experience God mystically as we do in the sacraments, we need each other. We need the church community. What a brilliant design. If you're an evangelical, this will likely take some reorientation. In the Western evangelical world, the focus is on the individual. The church is always seen as secondary. Salvation and church are two separate things. You don't need the church to be saved. The the problem with this is that it misses this theme that we find in the arc of Scripture, that God is communal and always moving us into community. And yes, we can find him when we're off by ourselves, but we certainly, by Jesus' own promise, will find him when we gather with others. The evangelical culture is very consumer-oriented. As a pastor, I would often see people visiting our church because they were leaving another church. A number of times they revealed that they were emotionally or spiritually hurt by their previous church, or more often they just weren't feeling spiritually fulfilled. So they went church shopping, and sometimes they'd end up staying at our church. And on the inverse, sometimes I noticed that a regular parishioner hadn't been there for a while, and when I'd call them, I would find out that they were leaving for those same reasons. Maybe they were hurt or maybe they were just feeling spiritually unfed. All that to say, the idea that church is about the individual, about me and what I want and need, is a prevalent theme in evangelical Christianity. And I think core to the reason is because there is no sacramental worldview. This idea of the exchange of sacred oaths and mysteries is wholly absent from these churches where baptism and communion are approached as important, but just symbolic events. There's no efficacy, no transfer of grace. It's just a signal rather than a substance. This stems back to reformers like Huldrych Zwingli, who veered far from Martin Luther's position on sacraments by snubbing his nose at 1,500 years of Christianity, insisting there was no such thing as an effective sacrament whereby grace would be transferred from God to us. But this deconstruction whereby communion with God was separated from the context of communion with others, we need to understand is an invention of the Protestant Reformation. It is not scriptural, and it certainly is not faithful to the collective history of Christianity. I, I get it, though. I lived in that evangelical world for a long time. I'm, I'm empathetic and sympathetic to the evangelical culture. I find, though, that I'm just filled with pity that Christians miss out on both the grace and goodness of the sacraments and of the community that fosters that sacramental worldview. I see so much of the Protestant world continue to splinter and fracture. It seems like every pastor has a calling to go out there and start his own independent church. If God's call is for this unity that reflects the triune God, how can we say that we're moving towards God while simultaneously moving away from community? The sacraments provide a cohesion whereby we move towards God and we move towards community. One's personal relationship with Jesus and the church community are not two separate disconnected entities. The Catholic and Orthodox positions are that it's not an either or, but a both and. God, as he has always done, brings us closer to him, reveals himself to us, and he uses community to accomplish it. Not because he has to, but because he wants to. It is not good for man to be alone. That was God's assessment of the situation in the Garden of Eden. 
Central to Catholicism is community. The word Catholic comes from the Greek word katholikos, which means universal. It's a combination of two Greek words that mean towards the whole. It was first used by one of the early church fathers, Ignatius of Antioch, around 110 AD. Now, Catholics aren't immune from the hyper-individualism that plagues our Western culture. You'll find people rushing off after they've received the Eucharist instead of waiting until everyone has been served and the blessing has been said. You'll see complete strangers come into the church and have their children baptized because they know it's what you should do, but then you might not see them again until Christmas or Easter or maybe never. So while it's a little different than evangelical church shopping, it still is a consumer mindset. Give me, give me, give me the mystery without much of the sacred oath and certainly little understanding of our communal God and his desire for community. But when Catholicism is at its best, we see the embracing of Jesus inside the church. The church is meant to bring us to Jesus. So when someone says, I'm Catholic, they're saying, I'm moving towards the whole, towards God and other Christians. We see this big time in confession. Before becoming Catholic, I didn't understand confession. Why confess your sins to a priest when you can go straight to God? And we'll talk about this more in an episode about the sacrament of reconciliation. But the reason we confess our sins to a priest, besides the fact that it's biblical, prescribed in James 5.16, is because as Christians, we're not just in communion with God, but also with each other. When we sin, we don't just damage our own relationship with God. We damage the church. And so we need to be reconciled with God and the church. And, and we don't have to do it in isolation. We get the help of a priest in healing those relationships. Let me acknowledge something for just a second. This trust in an institution is scary for a Westerner because in Western society, there's this deep distrust of institutions. There's no shortage of films painting the Catholic Church with some sort of conspiracy theory. We distrust our governments. We just generally distrust institutions, whether they be banks, pharmaceutical companies, corporations, down with the man, so to speak. All that to say, I, I get this institutional distrust. And if you're listening, you come from an evangelical or maybe even an atheistic background, or you've been burned by a church in the past, this idea of the centrality and essentiality of a church community may feel a bit uncomfortable. I think it's important also to acknowledge that in some cases, that distrust is deserved. There have been some really bad actors at times in the Catholic Church, even bad popes, which I promise we'll get to down the road. And what's so damaging about these bad actors is that it, it doesn't just sow distrust in the institution of the church. It traumatizes people to the point where they abandon the sacraments. They don't come to Jesus because the people in that community that's supposed to foster that relationship with God, that sacramental framework, have instead used their position in a manner that's abusive. Returning to our analogy from the last episode, it's like putting a magical wardrobe to Narnia in a haunted house. But it happens because God is relentless about including us fallen, frail humans in his supernatural work. He could just say quite literally, to hell with people, I'm doing this on my own. But he doesn't, and that's truly humbling and overwhelming, isn't it? But it's also such a beautiful gift that the creator and savior of the universe would include us in his redemptive work. What I want to leave you with is this. There's two ways we can choose to look at this idea of the community called the church. One is in a sense of distrust, this regret for having to rely on people. 
The other is this joyful and thankful sense, the sense that Adam had when he first laid eyes on Eve, or that sense of utter relief that those scared first followers of Jesus felt when the Holy Spirit arrived at Pentecost and empowered them together. We're not in this alone. It's not good for man to be alone. It never was. And that's the utter relief of the church community. We are Catholicos, moving towards the whole and moving towards wholeness. Thanks so much for taking a few minutes to join me on Why Catholic. I want to give a huge thanks to those who have left positive reviews and subscribed to this podcast. And I, I want to especially acknowledge those who have generously donated. Thank you. Stay up to date on news, giveaways, and latest episodes by subscribing to whycatholic.substack.com subscribe. Thanks again for joining me. My name is Justin Hibbard, and this is Why Catholic.